นโมทัสสะบวทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะบวทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะบวทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะนี่เป็นวันแรกของเดือนธันวาคมและดังที่เราได้รับการแสดงออกมาในการแสดงออกมาในเดือนธันวาคมและดังที่เรา Teaching by Ajahn Chah, where he says there is a path, but it can take a long while before we see a clear signpost. As for me, this journey definitely takes place in the heart. This morning at the uh, meeting at the meal time, I was commenting on a uh, observation that I made when I was uh, travelling in Scotland uh, a few months ago and walking down the high street of one of the main cities in Scotland, and and it suddenly struck me that the only The only happy faces that I could see were on these uh, big glossy photographs behind the shop windows, um, you know, like uh, the pharmacists and the optometrists and so on. They're these big smiley faces, people having a good time, but the actual uh, walking and talking uh, people out on the street really looked unhappy. They really looked troubled, and I couldn't hardly see anybody that even looked contented, let alone happy or smiling. And it really struck me: you know, what's going on here? This is this is weird. The, you know. And it wasn't because I was uh, I was feeling melancholic myself, or. There was something going on in Scotland. They just lost the rugby against the All Blacks, or something. It was, a, I'm sure, it had nothing to do with what was happening in Scotland on that day. It was relative to the frame of mind that I was in, and it could have, uh, the perception could have occurred, I'm sure, anywhere in the world. And and it's. I wouldn't say that this is the same thing as Ajahn Chah calls a a signpost on the path. You know, uh, he's referring to uh, deep, unshakable insights that secure one on the journey to liberation. However, I do think that such observations count as uh, hints, if you like, hints in the right direction, and they matter when we have such. Uh, Experiences such perception, 
what's going on here? You know, I mean, there's all these people, they, they all seem to have plenty of money, they're all dressed very well and carrying designer bags and, and it's not like they were homeless, impoverished uh, people in a, a uh, sad situation. There wasn't any outward sign for, for their unhappiness, but they all look very um, troubled. And, and so the question arises, uh, what's going on? Why, why are these people so unhappy? And uh, it's questions like this, in fact, it's a, a question like this that occurred to the Buddha, uh, most of us will be familiar with the story of the Buddha-to-be just prior to his enlightenment, around the age of 29, when, when uh, despite his, the best efforts of his father to protect him from seeing the sad side of life, and one day it happened and uh, Siddhartha noticed old age, sickness and death. And uh, what is this? What is this all about? Is, is, is this what you have to put up with as a human being? And, and it quickened this perception of disillusionment. I wouldn't say uh, that he got depressed, uh, but there was a sense of disillusionment. And he wasn't, in, he wasn't infatuated with, with the collective stories that he'd been told about what was really meaningful in life, you know, making money and and uh, being successful and having lots of likes on your Facebook page and so on, that uh, these stories ceased to be convincing. Uh, uh, they didn't matter. They didn't work anymore. Uh, the bubble had been burst. And this great question arose, what's it all about? Uh, are we obliged to live our lives and go through it and suffer? And so... So Ajahn Chah, this brief quote that uh, I mentioned earlier there, Ajahn Chah saying there is a path that we can take a long time before we see a clear signpost. Uh, in the process, before we arrive at clear signposts, when these hints arrive, these uh, signs that there's something off here, we're all like walking around kind of drunk, pretending that everything's okay, but it's not. You know, I mean, there's nothing guaranteed. You know, even if you commit your life to doing good and refraining from doing evil and being kind and generous and disciplined and helpful, we can all die at any time. And even if we don't die young, eventually we are all going to die. And it's probably not going to be fun. And, and uh, some of you will be familiar with the motor accident that happened uh, a few days ago where a very dear friend of our community, somebody I've known personally for more than 30 years, a, a wonderful, wonderful human being. She'd been out to a yoga class and coming back and her yoga teacher was driving the car and had something akin to a, a heart attack and floored the accelerator and ploughed into a wall and they were both killed instantly. And, uh, and leaving behind a husband and three children. And, and how do things like that happen? I mean, such a good, decent, uh, helpful, wonderful human being. This is the human realm. This is what our life 
is light? And are we victims to it? Or is there something more to it? Well, thankfully, uh, the, uh, the great question of is there something more to this uh, arose in the Buddha's heart and the Buddha's mind and he went in search of the truth and after a good number of years of some serious, rigorous spiritual discipline, he did, as we all know, awaken to complete freedom. The realization that meant that even though living in this world with the experience of, of pain and uh, unpleasantness, there was no suffering. There was freedom from that thing that we do, which is extra, which turns life into an apparent problem. And for the Buddha and all the awakened disciples, there are no problems, there is no suffering. For us, there is. And what are we doing that makes a difference? We suffer under a compulsive misappreciation of reality. We misperceive. We don't see accurately. We don't see clearly. The first fact of the Eightfold Path the Buddha talked about, Samma Ditti, this word Samma means accurate. Ditti means seeing seeing accurately according to the way things actually are. And that, yeah. For the awakened disciples, this is their reality. And so they don't suffer. <clears throat> they don't cling. They don't do what we do, which creates the problems. So, so our experience is not unobstructed awareness, but obstructed awareness. And so this is our work. And, and the signposts that Ajahn Chah was referring to are, uh, confirmations that we're going in the right direction. Mm. Very uh, encouraging and reassuring for, for those who come across a signpost to have that confirmation. Mm. In the meantime, yeah. our work is whenever we come across uh, any experience of obstruction, any degree of suffering, We need to somehow, somehow find a way of meeting it and then ask the question, what can I learn from this? Now when we're not prepared, when we're not really ready and we encounter suffering, we tend to think, oh, what's going wrong here? Who's to blame? Somebody's upset me or is it me? I've upset myself again and something's gone wrong. For those who are properly prepared, who have the awareness established, the interest established in reality, when we feel obstructed, when we encounter some degree of hindrance, we don't turn to blaming and criticizing ourselves or others, we get interested in it. and say, what can I learn from this? Moment of feeling threatened. Feeling disappointed. Feeling let down. Feeling worried. Feeling dread. Christmas is around the corner. Maybe we're filled with excitement. And we love Christmas, or maybe we're filled with dread and think, oh, do 
we have to go through this again. Well, whatever the experience, it is what it is. It's our practice. Practice doesn't have to mean trying to be peaceful all the time. Getting peaceful is fine. That's, that's like going on a holiday. It's nice to have a holiday from time to time. But that's not how we earn our living. That's not our work. Our work is meeting life as it occurs. And if what occurs is dread or fear or disappointment or worry or anxiety or anger, we meet it, we greet it, say, this is it, this is practice. Now, of course, what we're interested in is letting go of the obstruction. We're interested in being free, but we don't find freedom, we don't experience letting go by doing the ostrich practice, sticking our head in the sand. That's an unintelligent response to suffering. The intelligent, educated, informed response to disappointment, frustration, worry, anxiety, fear, sadness, is to get into what's really going on here. Why are all these people walking down the street looking sad when they've, they've got more than enough food, more than enough clothing, more than enough shelter, got more than they need, and yet they don't look happy to get interested. Not judgmental, not dismissive, but to get interested and until the understanding arises according to reality, the clear seeing arises and letting go happens. And then we're grateful. All right, that's the point of not turning away. The temptation is to turn away. Most people turn away. Most people go and eat a pizza or watch something or distract themselves in some way, pull out the smartphone and check something. But to inhibit the distractions and to attend to the reality is our practice. That's our way. So in cultivating this way and walking this way, we need to develop skills. And One of the skills that the Buddha talked about is what we call recognizing the five hindrances. We also talked about you know, recognizing you know, the five ways of removing distracting thoughts and meditation. These various lists that the Buddha articulated so that we could be prepared and then there's the Buddha's explanation and then there's also further commentary and particularly this uh, subject of uh, hindrances. Mm. Ajahn Turadama has written a very helpful book about that called Working with the Hindrances. It's highly recommended and worth becoming familiar with. And In advance, we, now when we don't understand in advance, then we can be struggling away, making the wrong kind of effort. You know, so. so with regards of dealing with the various obstacles we encounter on the journey, in my experience, besides these lists that the Buddha and the teachers have given us, it seems to me that there are three basic approaches that it's helpful to know about. Mm. The first approach 
I think of as, as the approach of just cutting through. It's, it's that kind of effort. It's withholding attention. You just cut through, refuse to acknowledge that this is happening. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this approach doesn't work for everything, but it's worth trying. You know, you've got some, some worry, some pestering thought. Maybe it's like some, some tune, some old tune that's going round and round in your head, and, and especially if it's a corny tune, it can be uh, irritating. Maybe the first approach is just refuse to attend to it, just refuse. Just if we've exercised the discipline of attention in advance, we just say, don't go there, don't look at it. Or it's a, a worry about something, what if this, what if that? And say, don't go there. She say, no. You say, like, no. It's a resolute, decisive sort of effort. And as you're saying that, in some cases that doesn't work to keep insisting that that effort should work can cause more harm than good and can hurt ourselves and if after a while the distraction still persists it could be useful to actually engage the thinking mind now many of us started meditating because of compulsive thinking and we can demonize thinking, we can have the view that, that thinking and meditation don't go together, but uh, the Buddha often referred to you know, wise reflection or contemplation as the very tool, the exact tool for levering us out of an addicted relationship to something. And in the conversation the Buddha had with his son Rahula, he asked his son, what is... The mirror. What is a mirror for? And Rahula said, the mirror is for seeing your face. And, and then the Buddha said, well, so I say wise reflection is for seeing the mind, yeah. seeing clearly what's really going on. Yeah. To really see clearly, sometimes withholding attention isn't enough. We need to contemplate, we need to consider. Yeah. Like, for instance, considering if we're caught up in indignation for instance we can consider how good it would be to not be so miserable waking up every morning dwelling on negative thoughts about somebody resentment always be dwelling on resentment to see the advantage in in getting free of it to see the disadvantage of being stuck on it what that takes thinking we need to engage our mind. And of course, as I've spoken about many times before, the difference between contemplation and proliferation, uh, if it's proliferation, pointless proliferation, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, contemplation or wise reflection, we can stop it. We can engage the theme, the topic about which we wish to consider consider it and then we stop and feel how it feels in the body to be contemplating this theme the image I've often mentioned before I find helpful is like when you drop a pebble into a 
a still pond and you see the ripples moving out. When we think an intentional thought on a particular subject, uh, and then we turn to feeling how that feels in the whole body-mind. This is studying. This is studying the Mm body-mind. That quote from Ajahn Chah that I mentioned earlier, the the context in which he he mentioned that, he he was talking about what fun it is to study the mind, to investigate and see what's going on in this body-mind. And he talks about it as being fun thing to do. He said he could talk about it all day long. So, so much fun. When we're really doing what we need to be doing, then there is enthusiasm, even if what we're doing is looking at something difficult. There's a, a sense of well-being, a sense of self-respect, a sense of enthusiasm, a sense of interest, because it's relevant. So sometimes the kind of effort that's needed is cutting through. Sometimes it's seeing through, using our mind to contemplate until we understand in a different way, like using the thinking mind to conjure up a contrasting mental image. Again, if we're dwelling on resentment, we can use our mind to think about the fact that this person we resent, perhaps they also suffer like we do from resentment. How sad is that? To empathise with somebody else's suffering is compassion. Compassion can be the very trigger that brings about letting go. So sometimes we need to cut through, sometimes we need to see through. Other times, and this is important, what's called for, the only thing that's going to work is what I think about as burning through. That famous teaching by the Buddha, Paramantapo Titika, he's talking about patient endurance, is the ultimate austerity or the ultimate transformative power. Tapo is, the tapo generally means practicing asceticism, but the etymology of that word, it comes from the word means fire. And then we take on renunciation when we go against our conditioned habits. We we do get this resistance. I'm going to stop checking my phone every five minutes for the next half a day or the next half an hour, depending on how addicted we are. You you can feel the resistance build up. You start sweating and the anxiety of not being able to feed the habit. Mm -hmm. How do we deal with that? Well, withholding attention doesn't work. No amount of thinking, contemplating, wisely reflecting, generating loving kindness, whatever else, that doesn't work. What do we do? Well, we decide to endure it. And I really like what Ajahn Vajiro says about cultivating patient endurance. You're not patient for 10 minutes or 
the way to develop patience is to be patient now, to be patient. Now, personally, I, I extend it a little bit. I think, well, I'm going to be patient for the duration of one in-breath and one out-breath. Yeah. I don't want to start with, well, I'm going to be patient for the next day or the next hour. That can, sometimes that can feel like too much. So, but I do think I can manage one in and out breath. Uh, uh, patiently bearing with. Of course, remember, this is not bitter endurance. This is, we're talking about it. This is patient. It's gentle, actually. Mm. Bearing with something that feels utterly, unmistakably intolerable but we tolerate it. Sometimes that's needed. And we might hear this teaching and we might, of course, think, well, this is wonderful. What a wonderful teacher the Buddha was to point this out and we like to think how much we, we align ourselves with this wonderful teaching and admire the Buddha's teachings. But when we're in the middle of cultivating patient endurance, it absolutely feels like there's got to be something else that I could be doing. This is awful. We can't practice patient endurance when we're having a good time. Patient endurance is that essential approach, that essential ability that we exercise when we absolutely can't tolerate what's happening. We do tolerate it. And we don't even know how we do it. But we do it anyway. So, preparing ourselves in advance, have confidence in the Buddha's teachings, possibility of awakening, of letting go, and then we meet these obstructions, this encounter with these hindrances. It's useful to know in advance. One approach doesn't always work. Sometimes, yes, simply cutting through it, saying no. Sometimes that works. Sometimes we need to engage and actually think about it. Other times, no amount of anything works other than patient endurance. But when we do experience the letting go, that's when the gratitude comes in. Now at that point, there's a, uh, another level of caution or care is called for. It's, it's, you know, sometimes when we experience moments of letting go and we have such tremendous upwelling of gratitude uh, for the teachings and this opportunity that we forget ourselves right there and we cling to it and we think that we did the letting go and then we want to do it again. And uh, The reality is the letting go happened. We didn't do it. And there are stages of letting go. We can't just suddenly let go completely of something. If we really let go completely of something, this is another teaching by Ajahn Chah, which I'm very grateful for, he pointed out that if you've really let go of something, worry about something, and resentment about something, or doubt about something, if you've really let go about it, you won't be having thoughts, oh, I've let go of that one, I've done with that one. There won't be any such thoughts. It would be a, literally a complete non-issue. 
So it's sensible, it's helpful to bear in mind that uh, stages of letting go, like that quote from Ajahn Chah's down in Kusla House, it says, if you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have a lot complete peace. And, we might want complete peace, but we have to remind ourselves that uh, it's surrendering ourselves to this path of practice that brings about the letting go. It's not me doing it. Yeah. In the beginning, we don't even know that we're doing the clinging. We don't even know that we're doing the suffering in the beginning. We're suffering, but we don't even know it. We don't even know we're suffering, we don't know that we're doing the clinging. If we have the good fortune to hear the teachings and we get the message to say, actually, I'm really fortunate. This is a really good life and there's all sorts of reasons why I should be radiantly happy, but I'm not. So obviously there's something out of alignment. Something's not set up correctly here yeah. basically the, the views that we have of reality are obstructed and, you know, we get the message that we're doing something that is turning life into a problem and so we, and now we're at least connected with the fact that we're suffering and if we follow the teachings we connect with the fact that we're clinging and so uh, now we're at the stage of knowing that we're suffering knowing that we're clinging and trying to not cling trying to not suffer. If we experience some letting go, let's, let's be careful that we remember that we didn't do the letting go. Mm-hmm. And when the letting go is complete, mm-hmm. when it's really been done with, mm-hmm. we'll forget about it. We won't be having such thoughts as, oh, I've done with that one now. I'm over that. I'm finished with that. So that's why this path of practice is fueled by faith, not by uh, willpower. There's a place for willpower, absolutely, but without faith, without trust, we're not going to get very far. Uh, As I was saying before, uh, the only thing that's certain is that we're going to die. And we don't know when that's going to happen. But what we can do is observe the limitations that we impose on existence. Despite all our good fortune, we still insist on resisting reality. It's not the case that when happiness occurs, we allow happiness to be there and then when happiness passes it passes away we allow it to pass away usually the case when happiness arises we get lost in it that's our tendency we cling to it now I'm successful I'm having a peaceful meditation this is a good meditation because I'm peaceful because I'm happy because I got what I want I think I'm successful I am happy and we get stuck, we get born into being happy. Conditions change, happiness will pass away, and then we'll feel 
the consequence of that resistance to reality and we'll suffer accordingly. And maybe we'll have a disappointing meditation. Maybe the mind is just filled with proliferation and worry and anxiety and doubt. And Are we able to appreciate the fact that we just know it? Sometimes we can, but often we just get lost in judgment, get lost in disappointment. Getting lost in pleasure, getting lost in pain is the result of our unawareness. But as soon as we catch ourselves, we remember and we begin again. And we grow, hopefully, we keep growing in confidence, keep growing in appreciation, the way actually works. We can't make ourselves progress in the way we want. But we can see the consequence of trying in a compulsive way, in a demanding way. Trying in accordance with my way, me and my way. Very grateful to teaching Rajan Sumato in the early years where he pointed out that it's an aspect of wisdom to recognize and be able to live within our limitations. We can read the teachings by the Buddha, we can read the commentaries by the great awakened uh, disciples and get very inspired and then think, oh, I want to do that. Inspiration is like, it's like just such a rush when we get inspired. If we're not mindful, we don't have whole body mind awareness. When we get inspired, it's actually quite intoxicating inspiration. We want to convert everybody to Buddhism, so inspired, and get all evangelical. Or even if we can restrain that, we get drunk ourselves and get lost in idealistic notions of how capable I am, and we overestimate our ability. And regrettably, sometimes we hurt ourselves. What's wiser... As Sumato was pointing out, is to actually be alert to our limitations, to exercise, as the Buddha praised, modesty, humility. When we do get a little bit hurt, we get the message, and we don't keep persisting and get very hurt. We we learn. Hopefully, we we learn quickly. All right, we need to be careful. Don't be in such a hurry to get it all sorted. Mm. And what we can do is see the limitations of our effort. Right effort is seeing where we get it wrong. All right, that didn't work. And so we begin again. We learn from our mistakes. And in the process, what are we doing? We're working with ourselves. We're work- this is what we, we can't. We might want to change the world. Some aspects of it we can rearrange and have an influence on. But what we can really change is ourselves. And literally here, you know, we're talking about ourselves. We're talking about the I. This I that we experience as so tremendously important, uh, it keeps getting in the way. 
Even when there's a, a little mundane insight or a little um, benefit from practice, I tend to jump in and lay claim to it. Look what I did. I, I just had a successful meditation. I just had an insight. Well, if we have any sort of inkling of what a troublemaker this deluded eye is, then we want to work on this eye. We, we can come to appreciate that it's this eye that's getting in the way of letting go. It's this eye that's actually doing the clinging. This eye, in fact, is just a habit of clinging. That's all this eye is. It's actually a hallucination. It's a repetitive pattern of clinging. It's been going on for so long in unawareness that we mistake it for something real. But if we look closely, there isn't any solid, substantial eye. There's lots of apparent eyes. They've become semi-autonomous and have a lot of momentum behind them and they need to be worked on and we can work on them. How do we work on them? Well, first we recognize the consequence of their being out of control and we want to do the work and then we engage the practice. We find ways of of gentling this eye. If if there's an eye that is really rigid with fear, mm. trying to push past it, it won't work. Mm. We need to find a way of being kind to that frightened self, that frightened eye. Mm. Be kind and gentle. Mm. Or if we come across an eye that is heavy with arrogance and pride. I don't need to ask anybody for any help, ever. That's really very dangerous. uh, We all need help. All of us need help. Become heavy with self-pride and excessive confidence. You need to lighten that eye. Soften gentle we need to ready these various eyes maybe we come across a a really hot angry eye if we had the misfortune of early on in life deciding that we're not allowed to feel angry we're not capable of feeling angry without losing ourselves in it we deny anger and we create a space We create an inner space where we stuff all our anger. And we don't have to be very old before the room that we've created is full, chock-a-block full of denied anger. And then we find ourselves just a little moment of indignation triggers all this rage, triggers an overreaction. Sadly, it can translate into a very cynical sort of a personality that is endlessly complaining and regrettably this does often happen as people get older they they don't have any room anymore to deny their anger and it keeps spilling out so often the case that on this journey we come across such a perception as 
very angry, hot eye, that if we don't meet it, if we don't find a way of letting off steam skillfully, then letting go won't happen. Letting go just won't happen, even though we want letting go, even though we want the freedom, even though we believe in the freedom, even though we have great confidence in the Buddha's teachings, and we long for it, it won't happen, because this eye is too hot or too rigid or too heavy. So these various eyes, these various selves that we meet on the journey, we need to find skillful ways of working with and and remembering that often it's it's work in the body that makes the difference. Uh, it's one reason why, personally here in our monastic training, I insist that in the first three stages of training, the first seven years for Anagarika, Samaneras and Navaka monks, that there's a lot of physical work. Uh, some people who come to live here don't like it, and I get criticised for it. Ajahn doesn't encourage meditation. What he does encourage, some meditation, but not too much. What he really encourages is being mindful, moment by moment, in the body. What most of us like is to escape up into our attic and play with a computer in our heads and call it meditation. But to actually come down into the body, to go down into the basement and deal with all that life that we've stuffed away in there because we didn't want to or didn't know how to meet it, that's something else. But if we don't address that in the early stages of training, then sadly it will come and cause us trouble later on. So these cells, these, these eyes that we encounter on the journey are there to be received. And if we don't receive them, if we don't find ways of gentling them, softening them, readying them uh, for practice, then unfortunately the only alternative is falling into blaming others for our suffering. Even if at some stage maybe we'd heard the teaching that we're doing the clinging and we can stop doing the clinging, we want to be free from suffering, we cultivate this accurate seeing, this right view, be there with well-disciplined attention, the whole body and mind, see as we're about to relate in a clinging manner to experience and inhibit it in the whole body and mind. If we see that, then we grow in confidence. If we don't see that, then... The opposite happens. We keep feeding our habits. And then as I was saying, the only alternative is when all our rooms are filled with unlived life is it, this pain spills out onto the world. And, and that is truly, truly regrettable because it's just not necessary. But as we all see, it happens. And even the most wealthy countries, the most privileged people end up fighting and creating wars and, and creating fear and creating chaos. Yeah. Why is that? It's unawareness. They don't have any room anymore in their hearts to hide 
from life and so their pain spills out onto the world. That's truly regrettable. In the monastic community, it manifests often as restlessness. It's not not rare, actually, to to find people start out in monastic training with a lot of inspiration and enthusiasm and energy and, and resolve that get to a certain point where they encounter some obstacle that they don't have the skill or they haven't prepared themselves for and instead of slowing down, exercising agility and finding a creative way of meeting themselves there and then, they end up blaming. Blaming the monastery, blaming the teacher. This place is no good for practice, I've got to go somewhere else. And this is not just happening in this monastery or another monastery, this has always been the case, right all the way back to the time of the Buddha, likewise. When there isn't sufficient agility of heart and mind, sufficient readiness to meet ourselves as we encounter ourselves on the way, and letting go doesn't happen. We don't get to see the signposts that Ajahn Chah was talking about. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu.